Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning, and uh, we thank you for your word. And as we're uh, continuing uh, in this sermon series about uh, your church, I just want to pray uh, that we would be the people that you created us to be, and that we would be the church that you created us to be, uh, healthy, vibrant, serving uh, one another and our community, and that we would just love uh, well the way that you uh, have loved us. We thank you again for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I started uh, doing some research uh, for this sermon today a, a few weeks ago, uh, knowing that we were going to be talking about the bride, uh, the bride of Christ, which is one of the images uh, for the local church. And I got into this uh, kind of rabbit hole and probably confession time that wasted more time than I should have, honestly, on these kind of disastrous wedding stories. I found them absolutely uh, just a pleasure to read. All right? and I, I, know, I know that's wrong. I, I get that. But, but it was still, I got caught in that wormhole, you know. And, and one uh, guy writes that I got hypothermia during the outdoor photography. I missed the reception because I had to go to the hospital with my brand new wife who was still in her wedding dress. Another said it was time for the speeches and the maid of honor stood up and sobbed what a terrible friend she was because she hadn't written a speech. She didn't know what to say. A few minutes later of awkward crying, someone finally got up and ushered her off the stage. My mom's best friend and the maid of honor showed up the day of my mom's wedding with her head shaved. Apparently she was in love with the groom and this was her silent protest. Yeah, so... The marriage lasted two years, and the groom eventually married that maid of honor. Right, so, right. The mother of the groom uh, literally got up, pushed the bride out of the way, and told the groom, this bride's not good enough for you. I set you up on eight dates this month, and they're all perfect. I'm like, why is this guy still dating a month out from the wedding, first of all? But that's neither here nor there, right? And then she continued to drunkenly scream all throughout the ceremony, right? So obviously, when it comes to weddings, we're kind of used to an American process uh, for, to understand weddings and to understand grooms and to understand brides, you know, where a couple meets and they'll date for maybe a couple years. And at some point, there's a proposal and the bride accepts and then they throw a ceremony and everybody buys a toaster and comes, right? That's just kind of the process, uh, in this country, but you need to know and when you're reading texts about marriage in the Bible and about Jesus being the groom and the church being the bride, uh, I want you to understand kind of what the process was there because it, it really informs a lot of different texts in the New Testament. Um, th there was a three-stage process, and this process, uh, in order to get married, can, could last up to seven years. I, I mean, it, it was a really, really long process, but stage one was the contract, and that was creating the marriage bond where the bride's father, so the, father, the bride's father would sign a legal contract with the groom. Uh, and, and once that was signed, the couple was 100% married, but absolutely no consummation yet at that point. So this is how I want you to think about like Mary and Joseph in, in the story of Christmas, where it says that Mary was a virgin and she was betrothed to be married to Joseph. And then later on, you remember, it says that when, when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, he has in mind to what? To divorce her quietly. The reason that happened is that in the eyes of Jewish law, they were 100% married at that point, but there hadn't been any consummation. And so this period of time would sometimes last up to seven years. All right? the, the, so the stage one is the contract. Stage two is the consummation 
it's awkward, but let's just get into it, all right? So up to seven years later, the groom would have to raise a certain amount of money in order to fulfill his contract. And when he did that, he would notify the father of the bride who would set a date in order for the marriage to be consummated in the bride's home. So the bride would wait with her maidens for the arrival of the groom and his companions, and the couple would enter into a room, consummate the marriage, and all of the guests were in the room next door celebrating. I know, weird. All right, it's okay. It's just not our way of doing it. But so, so, bride, so section two, or, or stage two, was consummation, and then stage three was the wedding feast. So after that consummation, the entire wedding party would go to the house of the groom or the property of the groom, and they would have a procession to this wedding feast. And at the conclusion of the wedding feast, the couple uh, was considered 100% married. They had completed the ancient marriage ritual. And so this is one of Jesus's kind of big metaphors for for the church uh, throughout the New Testament, is that he is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And so I've always found it really interesting that um, one of Jesus's, not one of, the first miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding. And he's at this wedding, he's at the uh, stage three kind of party uh, where where they're celebrating uh, the, the marriage and the family here has run out of wine. And this would have been a big, embarrassing deal. I, I know that's different than our culture, uh, where I, I think it would still be pretty embarrassing like for you if we ran out of food at a party or whatever. But you know, it's different in American culture. And, and this would have been a shaming, embarrassing issue. And so Jesus ends up having these basins filled with water. And in his first miracle, he turns the water into wine. And let me show you what happens next. They did so. They filled the water. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Right? Good business decision. But you've saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus, in his very first miracle, he's kind of indicating, this is the kind of bridegroom I'm going to be. I'm going to bring the best. I'm going to be the best. And he is a very, very good bridegroom. I don't think you can really understand the bride until you fully understand the bridegroom. I've shared this list with you before, but I've always, always loved this list of uh, Priscilla Shire uh, lives down in Texas, and she developed this list of all the ways that we see Jesus throughout the Bible, and I love it. She says, in Genesis, he is the breath of life. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is Israel's guard. In Joshua, he is salvation's choice. In Judges, he is Israel's guard. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In First Kings and Chronicles, he is sovereign. In Ezra, he is the true and faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken walls. And in Esther, he is Mordecai's courage. 
In Job, he is the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he is our morning song. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is a time and a season. In Song of Solomon, he is the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he is the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he is the call from sin. In Daniel, he is the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he is the spirit's power. In Amos, he is the strong arms that carry. In Obadiah, he is our Lord and Savior. In Jonah, he is the great missionary. In Micah, he is the promise of peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he brings revival. In Haggai, he restores that which was lost. In Zechariah, he is our foundation. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And that is just who he is in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is the God and Messiah, our God and Messiah. In the book of Acts, he is reigning from fire from heaven. In Romans, he is the grace of God. In Corinthians, he is the power of love. In Galatians, he is freedom from the curse of sin. In Ephesians, he is our glorious treasure. In Philippians, he is a servant's heart. In Colossians, he is the God of the Trinity. In Thessalonians, he is our calling king. And Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he's our mediator and faithful pastor. In Hebrews, he's our everlasting courage. In James, he is the one who heals the sick. First and second Peter, our faithful shepherd. John and Jude, he is our lover coming for his bride. And in Revelation, at the very end, when it's all over, when it's all said and done, when time is no more, he is who will always be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Great I Am, the Alpha, the Omega, the God, God and Savior. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. This is our groom that I am describing. This is our faithful groom, and he is a great groom. He brings the best. He is the best. And we talk a lot about the groom around here because it's so worth talking about the groom. Uh, today, we want to talk about the bride. Today we want to talk about our response and our reaction to this great groom. We want to talk about being the bride, the best bride that we can be, the church. And so I want to kind of draw out three points from Scripture, preaching like a real preacher today, all right? All right, three, three points. They don't rhyme and they're not an acronym, so I'm kind of bummed about that. But um, here's what we want to study today, all right? As the bride respond, responding to the bridegroom, here's the first thing we see. The bride is faithful. The bride is faithful. Here's Revelation. Then I heard what sounds like a great multitude, like a roaring rush of waters, like the sound of peals of heaven, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. He's a great groom, right? For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen. Bright and clean was given for her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, these are the true words of God. That's Revelation 19. So this text is talking about that someday the groom is going to return for his bride. Someday the heavens are going to open up and Jesus is going to return and he is going to retrieve his church. He's going to retrieve his bride. And on that day, we will sit down at a wedding feast. One of my favorite images of heaven, a wedding feast, a party, a good meal, and no awkward conversation at all. All right, It's going to be a great, fun meal. There's going to be a party on that day. But here's what I want you to see in this text. There's a preparation or faithful stage. All right? In other words, the church gets ready because the church 
has been invited. Right? There's a preparing stage because there's an inviting stage. Notice verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper. Now, we don't use this terminology in our culture. We don't say, like, when I uh, was getting ready to, to ask Cheryl to marry me and all that, I did not phrase it this way. I would like to invite you. I love you so much. I would like to invite you to be married to me, right? <laughs> yeah, I can promise you she wouldn't be sitting in the front row if I did that, all right? We don't use this term, and I want, just, I want to invite you to this, right? Now, it's so awesome, right? Now, um, we don't use that terminology. We use the term proposal, right? We offer a proposal. That's how our kind of culture talks about this same thing. And I'll never forget mine at all because it did not go as planned. Uh, at all, my proposal that she's laughing already. All right, so <laughs> I had decided I wanted to ask Cheryl to marry me. You know, biggest decision I, I, I've ever made, best decision I've ever made. I wanted to ask her to marry me. And so I went and I bought this ring. And at the time that I bought this ring, we were uh, extremely, what's the word, poor. All right? <laughs> um, and so I got this ring and I put it in my pocket and I got into my car and the ring had more value than the car I was driving. All right? And so I drive over to Cheryl's apartment because we're going out to dinner and I decide I'm going to put this ring into the glove box of the car to protect it. And I was like, well, why would I do that? The ring has more value than the car. Right? So that's a stupid thing to do. If someone breaks into this car, I'm going to be beyond devastated. We won't be getting married till like 2020, all right, sort of thing, all right, if, if I do this. And so I pull the ring out and I put it in my pocket. Big mistake, all right? Because I had all these plans, all these conversations with our family that I was going to have, all this stuff that I wanted to do. And I got, to, got up to her apartment to take her out to dinner. And she hugs me and she's like, your heart is racing. She's like, are you, are you okay? Are you feeling okay? I said, Cheryl, will you marry me? And I, just, just that, that was it. It was over. All my plans, all this, will you marry me? And then, then it was over, right? So, and, and she agreed to, to marry me. But I think it's important, while we don't use this terminology at all, I want to stick with the biblical metaphor as opposed to the American metaphor, because I think it's really important that we remember God has invited us to the wedding banquet with him. God has invited us into a relationship with him. God has invited us to be his bride, and he's done it in small ways. If we went around this room right now, a lot of you could tell stories right now of some really small ways that you feel God's just been drawing me and inviting me and pleading with me, right? Some proposals do go that way, where you have to ask repeatedly, you know, please, uh, maybe tomorrow, right? Um, and and, and there, are, there are some ways in which you could say that you could see how God's been seeking after you and drawing you and inviting you to, him, to, to himself. You can see the people that he's placed in your life. You can see the circumstances that he used. You can point to the scriptures, the holy scriptures, some, some Bible verses that maybe really moved you. I remember talking to, with a guy one time, and um, he, he read a, a passage in Ephesians. And he's like, oh, he, God used that scripture to draw him to, to himself. So it happens in microwaves, microwaves, and, and then it also happens in the macro. That if you just think about Jesus uh, and the work that he did, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. In some really big ways, God has invited us to himself. And if you think about it that way, this invitation is an incredible grace. You are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I remember when we were 
got, got through the proposal and decided to get married and all that, uh, we put a lot of time uh, into the, the wedding invitation, trying to figure out like what it was going to look like and what, what it was going to be. And for the guy, it's just kind of torture to do that, honestly. Uh, but we wanted the, the uh, invitation to be fitting of the event, and they were beautiful. The invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb came not printed on paper, but as a human being. God sent us an invitation named Jesus. And he's perfect. And he came proclaiming the kingdom of God that it had come. He came doing miracles like we discussed, demonstrating he was who he said he was. He came preaching and teaching as one who had authority. He came and lived a perfect life. And he invites us. I know we don't use that terminology, but I want to stick with it. He invites us to his family. He invites us to live in his kingdom. He invites us to the wedding supper. Now, it's because we're invited that we prepare, right? You notice what the text says? The bride makes herself beautiful. And the text reminds us that the, the bride makes herself beautiful in the, in the case that we're talking about with righteous acts. We do these righteous acts because we have a wedding to go to. We've been proposed to, we've been invited. We have a wedding to go to. We are invited by Jesus. And I think we sometimes get this backward. Wait, man, I'm going to get myself pretty. I'm going to put on that wedding dress. I'm going to put on that tuxedo. I'm going to get myself uh, prettied up. And then maybe, just maybe, I'll get invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And life never works that way. I don't understand why we ever think that this would work that way. Nobody ever gets up and says, man, before they even meet somebody, you know what I'm going to wear into work today? My wedding gown. <laughs> You know, you don't have a, a boyfriend or a significant other. I'm going to wear a wedding gown to work today. Or you know what I'm going to wear to work today? I'm going to wear a tuxedo to work today. And maybe today's the day, baby. Today's the day I'm going to get married. People are like, are you okay? Are you insane? Have you lost? Like, nobody does that because that would be really, really strange behavior. Now, what you might say is, hey, to your sister or whatever, go get my wedding gown or go get my tuxedo because today is the day I'm getting married and today's the day I'm wearing that dress. Today's the day I'm wearing that suit. Today's the day I'm walking down that aisle. That would, nobody would ever say, are you insane, right? Nobody would say that because it's totally appropriate for it to happen in that way. And so we make ourselves pretty, we get ourselves dressed up, through these righteous acts that John alludes to in the book of Revelation here, we do that because we've been invited, because we have a wedding to go to, because Jesus has ushered us in through his grace. And so it's very, very important that we get those in the right order. Are you prettying up yourself so that hoping that maybe Jesus will notice you and invite you to the wedding feast of the Lamb? Or are you doing it in response to the invitation that's already come? In other words, we do, the way we talk about it here sometimes, sometimes is, are you doing it so that you'll be saved? Or are you doing it because you already are? And you're responding to him. You're responding to his grace. You're responding to his love. You're responding to his lordship. See, it is a huge mistake to think that the sole invitation of Jesus is an invitation of grace and forgiveness, and then life just goes on as usual. Some people believe that. And then the, the invitation of Jesus is the invitation to grace. It is the invitation to forgiveness. And then you just kind of live however you want to live. That's not true. An invitation to Jesus is an invitation to grace, to be sure. But it's an invitation to new life. It's an invitation to the lordship of Jesus. It's an invitation to the kingdom. 
It's an invitation to a lot of things, but we want to have those things in the right order. So the right response is preparation and faithfulness in response to invitation. We never have to worry about the groom's faithfulness. We never have to worry about, you know, you ever kind of see that movie Runaway Bride sort of thing? We never have to worry about that runaway groom, right? You, you never have to worry about that with Jesus. He's going to be dressed to the nines. He's going to be ready for the wedding. He's going to be absolutely uh, where he needs to be. He has proven his faithfulness. But the question becomes, through righteous acts, through righteous acts and through right living and all of the stuff that this text mentions, will we be prepared as the bride? We as the bride, will we respond to the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb with righteousness? And it makes sense that this is the preparation that he talks about. It makes sense because righteousness is the thing that will live forever. So we want to prepare ourselves. We're in a, this whole thing that we're doing right now called life is the preparation phase. So we want to prepare and make ourselves ready because love will live forever. So we want to learn to love, right? Service, serving one another will live forever. So we want to learn to serve one another. Joy will live forever. Righteousness will live forever. All of those things will live forever. And so we are preparing ourselves not so we'll be invited. That happens through grace. We are preparing ourselves because we already have been, and righteousness is the right way to respond. So we practice righteousness today. What is the next right thing Jesus is calling you to in your marriage, in your relationships, in your life? What is the next right thing he's calling you to? And this is, we're practicing for eternity. We're readying ourselves for eternity. So the bride uh, is righteous. The bride is faithful. The next thing is the bride submits. All right? I'm going to show you an earthly wedding passage that actually has to do with this. We studied this earlier this year. But submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, to present her her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So this text is most often used to describe marriage, but here's what we need to know about marriage, earthly marriage. Marriage is intended to be an example and illustration of our relationship with God. And so we want to set aside, in our understanding of this text for today, we want to set aside the idea of earthly marriage uh, for, for just a minute. We want to set aside the idea of earthly marriage, and we want to focus on being the bride of Christ and what this text teaches about that. We want to focus on what it means to be the bride, and we're going to use uh, some language here to describe the relationship between the bride and the groom that you wouldn't really use anymore to describe earthly marriage, but it's appropriate because Jesus wasn't as uh, perfect and uh, uh, holy and righteous and all that. So some of the language we're going to use is totally appropriate for a relationship with him where we have to interpret this text in earthly marriage in terms of, of the sin that we all are bringing into our relationship. So we want to set aside earthly marriage for a minute and just focus on Christ for a few moments, if, if you'll allow that. Here's what we learn about Jesus in this text. He is the head of the church. All right. So what exactly that, does that mean? All right. 
A lot of times we think that just means like he's in charge of the church, and it certainly does mean that. He is in charge of the church, but according to this text, it also means that he is the head kind of lover. He's the head self-sacrificer. He's the head that does good. He is the head of the church, and we as the church follow him. So next Sunday, we're going to talk about the leaders that we have in this place. So we appoint leaders to help oversee our local congregation, but we understand that those leaders seek Jesus, and they seek God, because we understand that when it comes to the church, Christ is the head of the church. So what this text teaches us after that is he's the head, the church submits to him. Talked about this before, but submission is the joyful and voluntary laying down of our will for the will of another. And that's exactly what we do as the church. When it comes to Jesus being the groom, we seek to learn his will. We seek to learn his commands. We seek to discover his ways. We seek to learn what Jesus talks about on any variety of subjects. And we submit our will to his. And I am telling you, all right, if I can kind of look into the future just for a minute, the more the local church of Jesus Christ does this and does it well, the more we will be hated by culture. I'm telling you right now, as we learn Jesus' way, as we seek his commands, as we look at his will, and we just say, man, we're going to bend the knee, we're going to joyfully, voluntarily, and passionately submit to him. The more we submit to him, he will be pleased, culture will not be. All right, we talked about this before, but what we never want to have is sometimes with uh, kids, they get this yeah, but disease. Where, you, you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, hey, could you clean your room? Yeah, but. All right? Could you clear the dining room table? Yeah, I can do that, but. Right? Uh, yeah, it, it's this kind of yeah, but disease. A lot of kids have it. I hear it's treatable, but um, talk to me after church if you've got some thoughts on that. Um, <clears throat> And we never, we never want to have like, yeah, but disease when it comes to Jesus, right? Where Jesus is like, hey, church, this is what I suspect or uh, expect. This is what I command. This is what I desire. And we're like, yeah, Jesus, but uh, this is what our culture says. I don't want to make waves. This is what my family taught me. I don't want to make waves. This is what I want to do. Yeah, but we never want to have that disease when it comes to Jesus, See, submission, and I really, really believe this. We talked about this in the marriage series a while back. Submission doesn't just start with joy, although it does. Submission starts with the joyful, voluntary laying down of one's will for the will of another. Submission doesn't just start with joy. Submission, I really, really believe this, leads to joy. And the reason I can say that with such confidence is I believe our groom has already proven himself, how much he loves us, how much he cares for us, how much he's willing to sacrifice to it. And our groom is leading us to life. Our groom is leading us to good things. Our groom is leading us to the promised land. And so if we can kind of get sometimes culture or family background or other relationships out of our minds a little bit and say, man, I believe the groom has already proven himself. And as the bride, I'm going to joyfully and voluntarily submit my will to his because he's leading me to life. I believe that will start with joy and it will end with joy and there'll be joy in between. All right. So last thing we do, and this isn't, this text I'm going to show you isn't exactly related to the bride, but I think it applies really well. And it's about a wedding the last thing we do all right, after submission is we wait, and we wait well. Here's a parable Jesus told some, one time. 
At that time, the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Remember what we talked about, the three stages? Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going to go out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in uh, with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know the day or the hour. In our culture, as you can see, our culture runs a little different than this. In our culture, um, the wedding tends to revolve around the bride. As a matter of fact, when I'm officiating a wedding, I'll usually say to the wedding party, hey, um, if you ever wonder, like, where should I be looking or where should I be pointing or what, 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 what should I be doing, where, where should my body be positioned, I say, it's always toward the bride. You see this guy, and I'll point to the groom, you see this guy, doesn't matter. <laughs> Right? For the purposes of this day, doesn't matter. All right? And that's just the way our culture is kind of set up. You can tell in their culture it was a little bit different. In the first century, those roles were almost reversed. A lot of the proceedings, a lot of the activity focused on the groom. And when you move uh, that metaphor to the spiritual realm, it really takes hold of us that we as the bride, what this is teaching us is we are called to wait patiently for the groom to appear. And listen, he will most certainly appear. He will. Someday he's going to return, the book of Revelation says, with fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will come and he will destroy sin and death and Satan and he will transform this world into the new Jerusalem and that will be a really, really great day. He will appear. But that moment, at least at the sound of my voice, that moment is not right now. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was, by the way? That moment's not, then I'll, oh, wow, all right, I'm a better preacher than I thought. All right, no. That, moment, that moment's not right now. Right now, we are Waiting. And we're patiently waiting. So what does that look like for the bride to wait well? I think it's the person in this room that's facing trial and difficulty, but they choose to endure. I think it's the person that's discouraged this morning, but they refuse to give up. It's the person in difficult situation, difficult circumstances, that they are handling it with grace. It's the person facing overwhelming odds, but they're in this room choosing to worship. It's the person that waits well. It's the person that waits patiently. We endure. We persevere. We understand in the future, someday our groom will appear. But while that time is not right now, we have a mission. We have a purpose. We have our marching orders from our groom. and And we keep our lamps trimmed. We keep ourselves ready. We work on our preparation like the scriptures teach. 
and we wait. And we wait well. We're not discouraged. We haven't lost heart. We haven't given up. We're not thrown in the towel. We're waiting patiently with hope and joy and peace and purpose. We wait and we wait well. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great groom that you are. Um, we, are uh, we are blown away. In this marriage metaphor, um, we are blown away by what a great groom you are. And we just want to pray that we as the church, we as your people, we as your bride, that we would be a faithful bride, that we would be a submissive bride, that when you have made your will clear, your commands clear, that we wouldn't fall into yeah, but disease, but instead we would bend the knee and we would serve because of who you are. And that we would be a people that wait and we wait well as we get ready to receive communion together. This is a, um, this is a reminder to us of what you accomplished when you came the first time. And then we, we sit in this moment with hope, knowing that someday you will return. And you will finish what you started. We're grateful. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together right now. And like I said in the prayer, it's an opportunity for us to remember uh, what he accomplished the first time he came. That he came and he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross and he died for our sins and he resurrected and a month plus later, he ascended into heaven where he is right now at the right hand of God. And that all that he accomplished uh, was, fits into the realm of grace to forgive us and show us the way um, and to give us his Holy Spirit. But someday he will return. And this is an opportunity for us to remember that as well. And right now we wait and we wait faithfully and we wait well um, in the context of what we already, he's already proven himself. We already know what he's accomplished. And so we just want to give you a few minutes to spend time with God. When they pass the two cups out, you'll find them stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And you can just spend some time with your God, thanking him for what he's already accomplished and thanking him for what he will accomplish in the future. And, and then I'll come back up and we'll take it all together as a church family, uh, as the bride. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your grace poured out to us through Jesus uh, as we get ready to, to leave this place, remembering that we are your bride. Uh, may we do what you've called us to do well. Uh, may we follow you and, and love like you, love others like you have loved us. We're grateful. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Today felt uh, um, more flattering as a description of the church. Um, uh, than, than some of the other metaphors. You know, when you think about a bride, weddings are fun, and, and you know, the, the bride, and um, it's all very kind of regal and fun and, and beautiful. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the metaphor of the sheep, <laughs> which are less so. I actually have a, a book in my office called Talking About Us as the Church. They smell like sheep, right? <laughs> Talking about all of us. So um, it is a, a different metaphor, but a powerful one as we think about our good shepherd, uh, that, that came and he leads us well. So, uh, hey, go ahead and stand up, and we're going to close with one last song. Really glad that you were here today. Uh, have a blessed week ahead. God bless you guys.
I won't be shamed.